0: <laughs> I'm very
1: relaxed, as you can tell, i stretching. G'day, guys. Welcome to the ISS podcast, Uh podcast that is proudly supporting SwissAid, a proactive mental health charity. Um, they got a free app for organising your life and living through eight different principles. Go and check it out uh, in app stores now. My guest this morning is uh, – she's a bit of a legend in the – the meat world of cooking, all things meat, uh, Jess Pryles. Mate, how are you? Welcome.
2: Hey, I'm good. You said good morning, but it's good evening here.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's, I've still got my first coffee going
0: downrange.
2: It's about time for a beer, honestly. <laughs> Where are
0: you, <laughs> Jess?
2: I'm in Austin, Texas.
0: Nice, nice.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, deep in the heart, as they say. So what- but I'm from Melbourne originally, so act yeah right. see so, it's a real yeah <laughs>
0: change how long have you been in the states for uh
2: so I moved in 2015 and I but I'd been coming to Texas for like seven years prior to that so I'd already become obsessed with like barbecue and Texasy things so by the time I moved I had I knew the city really well I had a good group of friends over here so it was like the least traumatic move ever but Obviously, miss, miss Australia a bunch, especially at the moment. I used to come back two or three times a year, so super pumped for when that can happen again.
0: You're not missing a lot at the moment, mate. We are stuck inside doing absolutely nothing. So that's,
2: I've heard. I've heard. very, very different. I'm not going to dwell on it because I know that's not interesting to your listeners, but <laughs> it's really, 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 really interesting sort of seeing, you know, messaging with all oh, my family still back in Australia, so messaging with them. And then seeing us, like, go to Mexico and just carry on like normal, they're like, okay. Is
1: there nothing so, going on over there?
2: Oh, yeah. Like, there's no ICU beds in Austin, but everyone's like,
0: oh, fuck
2: it. just got to live your life at some stage, I guess. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting look at the way you can view this differently and how different people handle things, I think. Yeah. But we're, we're, we also have a pretty good vaccination rate here, which helps.
0: Don't get me started.
2: <laughs> now that we've hit on all the political high notes. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so what
1: was what was the reason for getting into um because I noticed and I've been a, a fan and a um a, on your pay the barbecue uh Barbecue Alliance. I didn't that's your that's when you're a co-founder. Well, is this the start yes. of the journey or?
2: Um, Yeah, so the ABA has been around um, for quite a few years now. It's the largest sanctioning body for barbecue in, in the Southern Hemisphere, and basically, we just meant it as a resource for people looking to get into low and slow. Because, like, you know, Americans think that they're like, "Oh, what's a classic Australian barbecue?" and they think I'm going to say like this insane, amazing. And I'm like, "Well, you get a flat top grill and the cheapest sausages that you can buy <laughs> from from the grocery store, a bag of white bread, and some white onions." But um, American style barbecue, that low and slow cooking was starting to become really popular. I had already been to Texas. And when you come to Texas for the first time, it's like a rite of passage. It's kind of like things you do, you know, like feeding people Vegemite when they come to Australia for the first time, you you go and eat Texas barbecue. It's just a touristy thing to do. It's also a delicious thing to do, which ends up being quite nice. So I had my first taste of barbecue. Sort of became obsessed with it, and from there, wanted to learn more about how it was made. And so, I I kept coming back to Texas. Did sort of overnight cooks with pitmasters to learn the, the trade. And by that stage, people were getting interested in it back home. So I was sort of like the go-to person for information on it. Um, and Jay Beaumont, who co-founded ABA with me, Jay and Adam, Jay wanted to put on a barbecue competition. He didn't know anything about it. He just Thought like that kind of food looked pretty cool, and so um, he's like, "Hey, so how do we do this?" And and the rest is history. And now it's crazy to see how much it's caught on um, since we founded it, and even since I emigrated, it's it's become. It used to be this sort of like niche hobby, and now it's just sort of blanket really a part of Australian culture in its own way because it's been interpreted to fit Australian culture. I think
1: absolutely it is uh, low and slow is what i don't you see people that have a barbecue that's now flat plate grill is sitting literally pushed off to the side and everyone's gone and got you know whatever particular it's ch- sort a of charcoal or a pellet smoker but it's sitting there and it's it's mainstream
2: and my prediction is that in another sort of 3 to 5 years we're going to swing back towards the plate but do really cool things with it, like smash burgers and chili cheesesteaks, and start using it for things other than cremated sausages outside bunnies. <laughs> <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. Love a good sausage sizzle.
0: Um so <laughs> you
1: um <laughs> I mean you got into the meat because you you enjoyed it and you've been going to actually doing studies at well, it's like meat science studies at, at university or, or anything like that. Why is there a reason? Because I mean, we're speaking to, uh, well, we follow Joe Rogan's podcast, and his his daughter, oh sorry, uh, Jordan Peterson's daughter had some autoimmune problems and got on a carnivore diet. Was there a science behind it for dietary reasons, or or is it you just wanted to learn more about it?
2: So there wasn't dietary reasons for me. Part of it as well was like, yes, I joke about. I make a joke about it. It was serious about how much I love the taste of barbecue for the first time and like, wow. And if you're a carnivore and you're a steak eater and then you get to try that smoky, barky flavor, it doesn't really take much to understand why people are obsessed with it. Um, for me, I was a big meat eater, but I never really cooked it at home because I didn't know how. Um, I didn't come from a big meat eating family. Steaks were always well done. It always seemed very like, do you do the seven minutes per side? Or set a timer or do it this way? Or it's it's intimidating to even know. Like when you buy an apple, okay, it's an apple and the Fuji's are sweet and the granny smiths aren't. But it's so hard to learn about steaks and what's what and how you cook it. And some things are called a steak, but they're quite tough. So when I started to learn more about barbecue, it was sort of like unlocking nintendo levels at the same time right so as i learned more and was like hang on how come a brisket in australia is nothing like the briskets i see in the states then suddenly i'm learning about cattle breeds and butchery and learning that how the french butcher is different to how the american butcher meat is different to how australians butcher meat, and i started picking up things along the way um, that I was sharing with other people, which is how sort of like I came to have a following of like, oh, I learned this and actually it's easy to cook it this way. And it just it I empowered myself and therefore other people to cook. So what that led to for me was uh, I really wanted to learn more about it. And I was finding out little tidbits of information. So I was visiting like abattoirs in Australia and speaking to people in the industry and Speaking to butchers and all kinds of stuff, and I was getting these little fascinating tidbits, like, you know, like, oh and, and there's so much that goes into meat, and particularly beef, that we don't even think about um, in terms of um, uh, pH and the slaughter process and macro microbial activity and all this kind of stuff. So that affects the meat quality, and I was starting to learn a lot. And I picked up a lot of stuff in my travels and I've done these short courses. There's there's meat science, it's meat science schools in Australia too, but there's a lot of them here in the States. Um, the big one is in, in in Wagga, I think it's Charles Sturt. Is that the university in Wagga? Oh, I'm that's shaking my head. That,
0: that's a university somewhere in Australia. It's about as much as I know. <laughs> let's go, let's but run with Wagga. Yeah, sure.
2: So Whatever the university in Wagga is, and I should know because I've spoken there, but um, they have a, a meat science um, department. And I had learned so much, but also wanted to learn more because it was all a bit curious in my head, you know, of like all these things floating around and I wasn't too sure how they connected. So I ended up looking online and the university, uh, Iowa State University, offers a graduate program in meat science that's all online. So it was very convenient because I didn't have time to move to another city (laughs) with a full career and everything else. Um but I had to apply for exemptions because I had a communications degree from back in Australia that had nothing to do with anything with no science prerequisites. So I had to apply for all these exemptions of like real life experience counting towards this graduate degree. But it was the first time in my life, like I'm over 40 now and it was the first time in my life that I wanted to go back to school. Like I finally understood what it's like to be passionate about studying something.
1: So the, so you're saying that the uh, the briskets in America and Australia are different?
2: Yeah, so there's a big difference mainly in – it's started to change a little bit, but if you if you know anything or you've gone into low and slow, even in the last sort of five years you've seen a dramatic change in the type of beef. So historically there's a big difference in genetics, um, which has a lot to do with feed. So we have more grass-fed product in Australia. They grow a lot of corn in America and can feed with corn, which gets the animals bigger? They have a bigger history of ranching, so the genetics have been around longer. So literally, the, the steers are bigger here in the states than what you would find in Australia, as a, as a general rule. And then Australia was um, killing them pretty young at about twelve to fourteen months, so we, were, we they were smaller. Um, so you would get a smaller, leaner brisket. Um, here you you're at about 24 months um on a steer that's been on heavy corn, so it's a big old mofo kind of thing. So you get those big honking Texas briskets. And the big problem is when you cook a brisket or when you smoke a brisket, if it's too small or too lean, or that that flat, which is one of those muscles that we look for at the bottom of the brisket, if it's too thin you're going to just be pushing it uphill the whole time. So you, it, it's really hard to make it anything but shoe leather or jerky at that point. So you need it to be a physical size. That's what a lot of the original low and slowers struggled with in Australia we couldn't find the size of the briskets we wanted. They actually end up taking a lot of export meat, export beef in Australia that had been on grain for 300 days, those big, big boys too, and started keeping it at home for the, for the competition barbecuers. And on top of that, the way that they cut it here in Texas, it's known as a packer cut which basically means that at that abattoir slaughterhouse level, they're doing very little trimming and they're leaving two different muscles on so that people can decide to trim as much as they want at home. But if 10 years ago you walked into your local butcher shop and asked them for a brisket, you would have gotten a completely trimmed thin piece of meat, which is just one muscle out of what we consider the brisket in the States, called the flat muscle. Um, And that's not suitable at all for smoking because all the fat's been taken taken away, so there's nothing to protect it during the cook. And if you don't know this, which was literally my situation of going like, I walked into a butcher shop and asked for a brisket, like, what's the problem here? Why can't they give me what I saw over there? It's a really intimidating, weird world, you know?
1: Do they, do you get, is there a, the argument the grass and grain fed? I mean, do they get into the, you are what you eat, eats? And is that something that, that's been part of your sort of journey learning that? Or, or is that, what's your sort of stance on it?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, it's one of those things of, I know Rogan, for example, talks a lot about his meat and organic and wild. And the reality is that we sit up here all very safe and and noble in our little, like, in our little areas controlled by the government. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Australia has MLA and local health laws. America has the USDA. There's a lot of shit that happens in the background to make sure that the meat that we eat in first world countries doesn't make us sick and is of a good quality uh, and good tenderness and things of that nature, right? MLA, the Australian version, actually has one of the most advanced systems in the world in terms of um, grading and rewarding carcasses that, that are better marbled, just better quality overall. The, I'm a hunter, as you can see, and the reality is that I have no idea what this animal was eating, what it was doing, or if it was sick before I killed it. So I take a risk every time I actually eat wild game because there could be something wrong with it. Um, there are things you can look for to mitigate that, but um, I think that we paint the picture oftentimes that it's so majestic to walk into the mountains and dispatch an elk and fly your elk steaks back to Texas, which not everyone can do. Um, and then take that meat and, and be like, Oh, it's organic. It's real. It's great. Okay. Well, we can't feed the whole population with it. And it is great. And it is wonderful to like help manage a species that has, has like, a, like sandbar, which was introduced here in Texas or like white tail, which is native, but needs population control. And that's all responsible, but it, I think there's a way to do sustainable fat farming as well as far as grain versus grass is concerned um there are there are arguments for both sides in terms of like the nutrients that they have in them the different types of fats that they have in them um the biggest issue is sometimes when you choose meat it's like anything right like does anyone like drinking a glass of spirulina <laughs>
0: Uh, sometimes. No, you don't. <laughs> I don't know what I do. I drink green stuff every day. You not, like- but the, that being said, ninety percent of what I eat, if well, depends what kind of mood I'm in over the months. If I'm actually trying to be healthy, I have no fucks to give about what, how food tastes. I'm only going to be eating it because of what what's in it. So, so yes,
2: spirulina is pretty good. Right. right. So usually the choice you have to make between grain and grass, and it's not absolute, like. Again, there's a company out of Tasmania called Cape Grim Beef that have all grass-fed product that's amazing quality, but most of the grass-fed beef in Australia traditionally, when you go into a butcher shop and you see like there's no fat in it at all, like kind of probably watery on the surface, um, just all red-looking ribeyes or scotch fillets, for example. By culinary standards, not health standards, that's considered... Not that great a steak. Mm. What you want is marbling, tenderness. That's going to be flavor, juiciness, all that kind of stuff. And and that it's sort of one or the other. You know that they're not. Not that beef is unhealthy for you. It's just not. Oftentimes, grass-fed product is sold to the health market rather than the restaurant market. Does that make sense?
0: Ooh. Yeah. That's really
2: Yeah. Conspiracy, like it's, it's like the difference people talk about between the tomatoes you get at the grocery store and like farmers market tomatoes and the difference in flavor, you know? It's nearly like that, like same, same but different. I'm very protective of the industry in the in a whole, I think especially you can see with Australia what's happening with vegan movements and things like impossible meats and printed meats and things of that nature. I think it's really important for the industry to support itself um, and not disparage any meat eating, I think there's a way to do it for different people to be comfortable. Um, and honestly, I've been in feedlots, I've been on slaughter floors, I've seen it all firsthand with my own eyes, um, and there's nothing that I've seen that has made me uncomfortable.
0: I've got one for you. What about Actually, using antibiotics to fatten up animals?
2: So they don't really – and that's a great question, um, and the way you asked it Is also really interesting. (laughs) It's leading. No. I'm going to say this as nicely as I can, Adrian. It's a great example of what happens when people who don't actually understand what goes on get scared about things that they're not sure of. Now, let me explain. It's not antibiotics that beef up animals. It's hormone growth, HGPs, hormone growth promotants. So that's what makes them bigger. So the mere fact, and like, honestly, all due respect, I think it's really interesting. The fact that you confused what those two things do is a great example of why, like, oh, I don't know what it is, but I'm not really sure about it. So HGPs aren't used in a lot of cattle uh, production anymore. In fact, any meat that comes out of Tasmania can't have HGP in it, which is the growth, the hormone growth promotant. And antibiotics, just like if you got a sickness... Um, if you, if you had, um, if you needed to take a course of antibiotics in January, and then you got another infection, you'd have to take another course of antibiotics because the antibiotics leave your system once they've done what they need to do. Right. So all farmers, at least in Australia and the U S um, are supposed to, if they administer antibiotics, if the animal needs it, you can't send it to market until after a certain time <coughs> when that antibiotic should have cleared their system, right? Now, can you find videos of that happening? Sure. Can I find photos and videos of people spitting in a burger at McDonald's? Sure. Does that mean every burger at McDonald's has spit in it? Not really. Does it mean that there are some shit people out there not doing things the right way? Absolutely. Um Meat science does a lot of stuff at the other end of this. The stuff that I didn't even get or understand because I ignored science, like in high school, I was all humanities. Like I, I get involved in this university program and they're like, okay, now we're going to talk about like the net neutral point and how pH swings when you add salt and it changes the net neutrality. And I'm like, like all this shit that I never wanted to know about is so relevant now. And what they, what these departments do is find ways to, on the whole, improve quality of beef. So I don't know how old you guys are or if you remember what it was like when you were little tackers, but the quality of beef in Australia, on the whole, has gotten much better. It certainly has in America because you've got these departments that look at what does that. There are things that we learn along the way. Um, there's, there's no actual – the thing with HTPs as well is there's nothing linking it. There's no firm evidence that it's an issue. It just makes people uncomfortable more than anything to think that that's in there. Like how people thought that, you know, eating too much chicken boob would give you boobs.
0: Oh, it doesn't? No. No. So, so what I'm getting at is, um, and this, this is likely not a mainstream practice. I know it's not something that if people found out about it, it would be a problem. Uh, but the concept was if you do have sick animals, you, you, you are legally allowed to feed uh, livestock um, heading towards consumption, uh, antibiotics. Then it was found that antibiotics kill your gut bacteria and get you fat. So if you've got dead gut microbiome, you you will put on weight. Now, the rumours were that um, livestock or factory farmers were deliberately giving healthy cattle antibiotics because it kills their gut bacteria and fattens them up. Um, so, and again, I, I, I haven't dug deep into this. It's, it's just reports that I, I've read headlines of. Uh, and that, I mean, it does, like exactly like you said, if that is a practice that, that's happening, then I definitely want to look for antibiotic-free meat uh, as yeah, well as trying to find grass I food.
2: I, I can't, I don't know. I don't want to speak too much about what you just said because I'd rather research it more before I speak about it, but superficially it sounds to me like there, there have been some people that who they used to give antibiotics um, preventatively and they don't do that anymore. I can tell you, I mean, I haven't lived in the States for, for five or six years, but I can tell you that it's much stricter than the U.S. And I can tell you that the U.S., they don't process sick animals. Mm. Um, they, they, they just don't. Um, If if it looks bad, and and there's also a disconnect here as well where it's usually not the farmer that sells direct to the abattoir, like it's a third party Mm -hmm. that can afford to hold the animal until they clear that. In regards to it fattening them up, the only thing I could think if it killed the microbiome in a ruminant animal would literally be that it inflates it rather than fattens it, and any livestock auctioneer worth their salt would be able to see that. Because it's basically that they would start overproducing gas and become, do you know what I mean? Like it doesn't It doesn't make sense that a microbiome would stop the animal from putting weight on or that the lack of, of microbial activity in the stomach would stop, uh, would encourage putting on Storage
0: weight. Storage of fat, yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I would like to dig deeper.
2: Do you, do you know how they claim that's supposed to work?
0: Uh, In humans, I mean it's still, I mean Max can probably go deeper into this than I can, but it's it's something that we don't talk about enough, um, how much we need uh, probiotics and prebiotics and and to keep your gut flora healthy. Um, But I I think we have touched on this in the past, Max, around studies showing that you will, if you have no healthy gut flora, you will um, store more body fat.
1: Yeah, they did some good ones um, in human beings. When we were looking at, especially the amount of medi- medications that Western World was taking and um, even people with chronic uh, inflammatory bowel diseases. And um, they actually started doing, a thing called it's like reflora. Uh, so they take a healthy person's poo effectively, get rid of the poo and inject the microbes into the healthy person. They found that the person that was so effectively they grabbed a, a skinny person, healthy skinny person, and they got their gut biome. And they injected it mm. into a, a fat, unhealthy person and that person got healthy. Um, yeah. And it was crazy. It, was it cr- sounds like
2: it has a lot to do with something to do with metabolic or metabolism,
0: yeah.
2: um, more than anything. And, and I, I cannot speak to this. All I would say in casual conversation is, um, that I would be surprised if the same thing applied directly to a ruminant animal because they do things so differently to us, which is not to say that it won't work in humans, and perhaps you are right. I just, I, I've, I've not heard of that before. Um, I've not come across it before, and I do know even in things like, you know, our, um, our the eye fillet on the human is not as tender as it is on the animal. Yeah,
1: tastes terrible.
2: Oh, I can tell you where all good cats
1: are mate. <laughs> on a on a on a person.
2: Sure.
1: Jess, Jesus. <laughs>
0: what <laughs> are you doing in Texas?
2: <laughs> uh I just that's one of the things you learn. I know we we have corresponding muscles, we have the same muscles. So the I feel it is called the psoas major. Oh. That's in our hips, in our hip flexors. Mm. But we're a two legged animal. So we use that muscle a lot. They're a mm. four-legged animal bent over, so they're not using that muscle in their hip flexor, in that area.
0: Yeah, my mine would be not enjoyable. It's, it's the got, tightest right. thing on my body.
2: Right, but again, like my, my my deduction, without knowing anything about it, would be the fact that they have the fact that they have four stomachs, and the amount that you would have to give them. To actually stop any good gut flora um, makes me a little bit skeptical. Yeah,
1: it'd be interesting. That's all.
2: Mm-hmm. But- because don't forget, it's all for profit, right? So, if the amount of antibiotics, uh, I'll tell you now, if the cost of the antibiotics exceeds the weight loss, uh, how quickly they're putting on—sorry, weight gain—then it's not worth it. Why would they do it?
0: Good point. Again, we're stepping out of my area. I've got no idea. We might have to move on because otherwise I think all three of us are just going to be throwing ideas up and no one actually knows the answers. (laughs) We'll have a look. Carnivore diet.
2: I'm just on a regular diet of I eat everything and sometimes not in moderation.
1: (laughs) 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 Sounds like my diet.
2: Exactly. So I know there are folks that swear by it and sometimes – so. I have a seasoning company called Hardcore Carnivore that's the name of my cookbook too. And the book and the seasoning company came out before the carnivore diet was super popular. Um, And I'm like, it's just a great snappy name. Like, what do you name a company that makes stuff for meat lovers? Hardcore Carnivore. And I've had a few people get like pissy that the book isn't for the carnivore diet or that the rubs have a little bit of sugar in them to balance them out. Because they're like, oh, this isn't carnivore. Like, no, just you don't own the word, bro. Like, it's (laughs) cool. Did not say that. I think it's, but I also know a lot of people who do do the carnivore diet that are big fans of the product too. And sort of, um, I've been on a few of those podcasts from doctors that run that. But, you know, I just don't have the willpower personally to follow any diet that strictly. So good on it.
0: I've tried it. I thought it was amazing. I did, I mean, I only did it for about a month and a half and then kind of switched over to eat everything but trying to keep fairly keto. But I I don't know. I'm a big fan of following blood type diets. And for me, like I'm O positive. I'm supposed to be eating a lot of meat. If I eat nothing but meat and, and assuming or assuring there's heaps of fat and oils on it, I was fine. Like I was never hungry and I was eating once a day just meat um for six weeks but after that i just got bored i mean that was the problem as much as i do love meat i would need someone like you spicing up like cooking cooking different types of but i was cooking the same thing almost every night which is never fun um but i don't get overly excited about food unfortunately but i think if you're going to stick to it you would need someone with a thorough knowledge of how to cook different types of meat every day
2: Maybe, but when I was on that carnivore podcast, they were exclusively eating ribeyes or or scotch fillets because it had the right amount of fat. So Mm. there's a lot of A lot of the other cuts aren't actually suitable for the carnivore diet in terms of getting the nutrient and and fat ratio mixes that you need in one go. From what I understand.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like you can't, you can't function highly on, on a high protein diet. You need either fat or carbohydrates. And, um, if you're eating carnivore, then obviously that's got to come from fats. And yeah. I, 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 like what we we're talking about before, trying to balance out eating grass fed meat in Australia, which has got almost no fat on it yeah. on a carnivore diet. It gets, it gets tricky. For me, it was, it was like 50 50 butter to steak every night for dinner. Um, so. you also
2: have great butter in Australia. That's one thing I miss because most of the cows are grain fed here. You don't get that beautiful, rich, like mm. golden yellow butter from the keratin in the grass, which has
0: yeah, yeah. I I stick to even though Australia's good, kiwi butter, like butter, anything coming from from New Zealand cows is amazing, and the the butter they've got's the best. Oh, sorry, I got a bloody dog jumping up behind <laughs> me. But yeah, it, it worked and it was good, but it just got boring. Um, so that's something. If I'm going to do it again, I'll have to work on learning some more barbecue recipes before I get into a carnivore diet.
2: There you go. Well, luckily, JessPryles.com, gratuitous self-promotion, has a lot of free recipes.
1: Good. I yeah, it out. I'm um, trying to do some, a bit of research beforehand. And you, I mean, not only that, you, you Channel 7, you did a, a couple of guest celebrity cooking competition, judging and and being on the show. Is that something that you kind of fell into, like getting into that, where people are looking at you as in hey she's a an expert meat cook per se like they're putting that label on you going into those industries initially was that was it a little bit overwhelming or getting into the media spotlight
2: yeah it, it's not something that i set out to do i feel like particularly in today's environment there are a lot of people who are like i want to be an influencer and um that wasn't a thing when i was doing what i was doing it was just more that I was learning and discovering something that I was super passionate about and sharing it. And I think when you're passionate about any topic, it really comes across when, you know, when you talk about it and want to discuss it with people. So for me, it was barbecue and meat. And, um, people were, it was just sort of also the perfect storm because people were starting to want to learn more about it. And sort of you're here, you know, I'm here as the keeper of all this wonderful secret information that everyone wants to learn more about. And I'm really passionate to tell them more about it. And so I was sort of the go-to reference for a lot of media and, you know, a lot of barbecue competitions and things like that. And then Aussie barbecue heroes was the show you're talking about that we do on channel seven. And I've done a bunch of food network stuff here in the States. And it's, it's weird. It's weird. Like, it's still weird for my husband too. Like I, he's Texan. I met him over here. And like I'll I'll go through airports every now and again and get recognized in some really weird places. And it's not, it, it's still weird to me. It's still weird and not, I wouldn't say I didn't sign up for it because when you share your life like that and, and you become a public figure, you sort of have to accept a bit of that. But um, it's weird. It's weird for sure. <laughs> like, I remember when we got engaged, I wasn't, I didn't talk at, about my personal life at all. And like, one day I'm doing this video and i suddenly got a ring on my finger and like, I was like chatting about it. I'm like, fuck, can we talk about the meat? Like, who cares, honestly? But people like focusing on personal lives and things like that. It's
1: weird. Um, cause it we called the, the female Ron Swanson. <laughs>
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I do drink a fair amount of bourbon. I have switched to mezcal now that I live here in Texas, being so close to Mexico. It's great. Um, again, Adrian, this is that quality of life that I was telling you about. <laughs> um, a lot of bourbon, a lot of meat, uh, a lot of meat. I eat meat seven days a week. Um, I. It's nearly that old school 50s, 60s mindset that it's not a meal if it doesn't have meat in it. Um, I just I mix it up, and this is what I was talking about—the balanced diet. Like, if I have a big ass ribeye on the weekends, then I'll look to have leaner cuts. A lot of game meats as well. That's where game meat and, and deer does come in handy because you can sub it for a lot of ground beef if you want to make the recipe low fat, low cow. Um. So yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> is that so? Ga- yeah, so game meats generally
1: game like I hunt. I don't generally I don't cook what I. eat shoot it's generally shooting pigs and roos that are all full of worms and disease you know so i don't uh but yes it's not normally quite game is and they talk about that as in it's it's more lean than
2: it is lean so it has a lot to do with this is another thing where studying meat science is coming really handy because you ask yourself like well why can't um we have a lot of feral hogs as well some people eat them some people just shoot them because there's so many we need to get rid of them Deer is not as gamey as Roo. Um It has a lot to do with how active that animal is. So that dark red meat indicates a higher pH level. Um, it's also how well you bleed it out. This is where all these variables come into play because hunters do everything differently. Did you shoot a deer and it ran off and it took you an hour to find it? It's definitely not going to have bled out. That might leave a metallic taste. How quickly did you pull the carcass? Did it start like, because you need to get it down to a certain pH where lactic acid comes into play and that acid undoes a lot of those off flavors in meat. So there's a lot that goes on and there are hunters here that swear like soaking it in milk will change the gaminess. There's literally zero scientific theory to apply to that. Um, You can brine things and put salt in them that can change that pH and draw blood out and there's lots of different stuff you can do um but on the whole um if you do find something usually most of the flavor in an animal is in the fat so you can do these really cool experiments where they did it in the 1960s where they took like an eye round of beef which is a pretty lean cut and they tried to microscopically remove as much fat as possible and then they ground it with different animal fats so they did the beef muscle with beef fat beef muscle with lamb fat beef muscle with pork fat and whatever fat they ground it with it just tasted like Minced pork or minced lamb, um, not beef. So, uh, particularly in wild game, if you do come across anything that does have some fat on it, that's usually where the most off flavors are. Also, because fat's the first thing to go rancid and start developing what we call those browned over notes. So, so I guess you're you're just still feeding them to the dogs. <laughs> There's, well, I mean, it's still if if you have to hunt them and they need population control. If you're feeding your dog with it, that's still sustainable in its own way.
1: Yeah. So, because what what got you into doing? I mean, you've gone and done your own hunting. Is it because you wanted to sort of take that, be that full holistic view of you know a like plate of food or whatever it is?
2: It's it's pretty common here. It's a common activity here in Texas. Um, so part of it was like just wanting to experience Texan life on the whole and really immerse and, you know, like I'd bought the hat, I'd bought the boots, I'd drive the truck, like what's next kind of thing. Um, but honestly, the biggest part of it for me was by that stage, I had had a pretty big audience. I was singing the praises of beef, singing the praises of barbecue, and I felt a personal responsibility. It started by just wanting to visit an abattoir and being able to see it. Cause I'm like, well, you know, I don't really have any business encouraging so much consumption if I can't even handle the way that it's done, which is why I pushed myself to do that and was sort of, I wouldn't say anyone's ever pleasantly surprised by going into an abattoir, but um, I was, I was happy with how I handled it, happy with what I saw and all the ones since then as well. And then the next step for me, again, as I got more and more of like a meat advocate was I have to be able to do this myself. I love my dog. I have a picnic table that's this big outside for the squirrels. I love seeing squirrels outside my door. I love animals and hate seeing them in pain in any way, shape or form. I, we have deer walking around certain neighborhoods here in Austin. You look at the babies, you go, oh, there it is, so cute. The but you can't, for me personally, I didn't feel it was appropriate to have that disconnect and that they call it cognitive dissonance between loving animals so much and then just sort of ignoring how meat happens, and that's why I wanted to go and hunt. And I did it for the first time, and it was sort of terrifying and exhilarating, um, and luckily, with the exception of maybe Two animals, nearly every one of them has been a super quick clean kill. Um, and you try your best to do that as best you can. So I'm not into the trekking out after, after them for hours and trophies. And like I said, that's an invasive species that shouldn't have been introduced to Texas that they're managing the control of. I have no desire to go to animal, to go to India or Indi- Africa and kill, you know, a large game animal at all. I pretty much only hunt whitetail deer which are native with a population explosion here in the in Texas and and I eat them all and I process them all myself too. So a lot of people here drop them at processors cuz they don't have time or cuz they don't have the know-how. Um I'll I'll take it down. I'll I'll take it from field to freezer to plate all myself. And I like it is really empowering. It's the first time I did it I was like
0: Listen, when the zombie apocalypse happens,
2: like I'm gonna be good, you know. I think that's
0: amazing. I love it. Like- Fing, fingers crossed, right? <laughs> fingers crossed, it's coming soon. <laughs> I, mean, I would be in a pickle, honestly.
1: I shoot it, and I'd be like, I can rub the skin off of it. It might like is with a rock or a stick? Like I wouldn't have a clue. I would be dead, and I'm like sick. And I think that.
0: No, it. mate, it depends how hungry you get. I think if you get hungry enough. You're not processing, you're just eating. Just eating. I wonder if, if there'd be courses to teach people.
1: And I think that's this you're talking about that cognitive dissonance, that that justification, the lie you tell yourself, you know, like between, no, I I mean I love animals, but I also eat meat, and you're like, no, we've just lost that connection with death and with where we get that realistic where we get our food from. Like Yeah. And but I think that learning that and people don't go on the farms and learn that when animals die, you you know, it's to me, it's literally I'm not naive about it, but you pick up a steak from the shops. I can't get an animal into that state, you know. And I thought that'd be, that'd be cool to teach people that process. And I think you probably learned some, maybe some people change their opinion.
2: I think about the shows like, it, I mean, the Royal Agricultural shows, you know, like it's not all for wool, some of it's for eating. Um, and Rural children just have a much healthier relationship on the whole here in the States. It's called FFA, which is the future farmers of America program. And they'll go and show their animals and they'll raise it for, for a year and they'll brush it and they'll show it and then it'll get sold to market. But then like they'll eat it and they'll honor it and that it, it, they just have a more healthier connection with where it comes from. But it has a lot to do with urbanization and. Just, you know, the fact that, again, I grew up in very, very central urban Melbourne and had nothing to do with farms growing up. And now I know more about ruminant animals than I ever thought that I would. But, um, uh, I think, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, it was important to me. I don't feel like everyone needs to step foot in an abattoir to justify eating meat. But the one thing that I do that, that does really irritate me and piss me off is, like people who won't handle raw meat. Like they're like, ew, gross. Like I've got to think about the texture, but they'll eat it. I'm like, come on, come on. Yeah, you get a bit
1: soft, hey? Yeah.
2: A little bit soft. Yeah, that's it. I
1: wonder where it takes us. It'd be interesting to see where where the world's going to be in another 20 years' time when everyone's just like, I don't want to. And because it's going to grow, we'll be the old uh, conservative, you know, like, oh no, you can eat your meat and just, you can kill it and cook it. And then, it go to people not wanting to touch it, to not wanting to see it, dead, to not like it. I mean, they've
0: got. Well, the they're printing to it now. Yeah. In Israel, right? What did you say? They're printing, yeah, three D printing meat, and that that shit is not good for you. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the artificial, sorry, the the, the artificial meat that, that they're making it is definitely not good for you.
2: But so the printed meat is actually meat. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Meat. So you're talking about? The- I'm
0: talking I'm about the vegan meat that that. You're better off smoking two packets of cigarettes a day than eating that stuff. It's terrible. And for some reason, well, I know why it's like the market demands it, but fast food chains have just taken it off and it's running like wildfire. Like everywhere you go now, you can get vegan burgers. I'm like, what about a salad sandwich, mate? That was fine. We should have just stopped there and leave
2: burgers alone. But it's, you know why it's because people want, get bored of eating one thing, right? And they want, they- yeah. I,
0: I think the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger funded um, vegan documentary had a lot to do with it too. Like, we saw nothing in Australia. I don't know what it was like in the States, but two years ago, no one, there was the vegan movement was here, but there's no way fast food and, and mainstream kind of food industries were, were taking notice of it. And then, I don't know, maybe I give that Doco too much credit, but it made a lot of people experiment with. Veganism, Yeah,
2: yeah it didn't last very long. But,
0: um, no, it didn't. It but didn't.
2: But, and again, you know, I've seen so many different factoids, even when it comes to like sustainability and greenhouse gas, gas emissions and things of that nature, especially in today's climate with what we're dealing with in the world with COVID and, and people getting their facts from various sources. You can debate till you're blue in the face and you can always find a web page or some kind of document to support your argument. Real true research is that you seek to answer a question and look at what's out there and evaluate, spend months and months, if not years, evaluating multiple sources to reach your conclusion rather than having an opinion and finding something. To, to back your opinion up, because you always find that no matter what your opinion is. So I've seen that a lot, as I said, especially in the sustainability argument, or rather, GHD is one of my favourite. Um, one of my favourite factoids for people is, um, can you name the top four producers of beef in the world? I definitely can't. No. So what if I told you that one of them was India?
0: For beef? Mm.
2: That's this sacred animal, isn't it?
1: I mean, I know that from reading, you know,
2: beef. India is one of the top beef producers in the world. Now, given how we've seen how clean the Ganges is and that they're one of the top producers, do you think that it's America and Australia that have the problem? Yeah. With how they're farming or do you think that it's? somewhere like Brazil and India. Shit. Mm. Again, I'm not saying that there aren't people who are at fault here, but it's really interesting when you see the bigger picture. Very interesting. It's true. Because I was like you, Anthony. I was like, what do you mean? It's, It's the sacred cow. Yeah.
1: Because, I mean, you see it. I mean, we talk about that regulations, and I think it's important that the food industry has pretty strict regulations. Um, you see, but you, you know, you go to the tip and you spend $50 um, to go and dump your rubbish into separate recycling places so they can go on. And then you see, you know, videos in third world countries where they just dump it off the back of a bridge into the river, do you know. So these regulations, yeah. I think, are super important to keep. I can't, I'm just spun out by India being the biggest beef, one of the biggest.
2: Not one of, yeah. Australia's up there. US is certainly up there. China's up there for pork, especially. <laughs> So, you know, a lot goes
0: on. Hey, mm. sweet and sour pork is delicious, but I don't know if I'll be eating pork coming from China, unfortunately. Why? Why? Yeah. I I don't I, again this is psychological right I when I go through phases of eating super strict keto I'll I'll eat a lot of canned oysters and when or I was until I found out that they were all coming from China and I don't know it's it's in my mind like China is still well, they they claim is is still classified as a developing country I just don't trust their equivalent of the FDA or their, their food approval authorities. And I know those products have got to come into Australia before I buy them, but maybe I do need to do more research. But at the same time, I'm like, it, it doesn't impact my life that much to not eat Chinese farm food. So,
2: No, I think that's a really healthy attitude. And I think that that is the point. I mean, obviously, as you said, the one loophole for that is that it does have to meet Australian requirements. But, you know, there are ways to get around that as well. But on the whole, there are differences between first world and, and, you know, second and third world countries and, and their standards. Um, and, and that's the point, you know, like we really don't have this bad and, and there's really not as much wool being pulled over people's eyes in our countries as a lot of people think. So yeah, no, I, I, I get it. I get it. I used to think, so my one big thing was Serena Tuna. That's what I missed. Mm-hmm. As it was my brand growing up, right?
0: And- yes, give me the dirt, because it still is my brand.
2: <laughs> no, I love it. No, well, I always thought it was from Italy.
0: Oh, oh, well, maybe I mean, the brand no, name might be, but no. I
2: just assumed, given the mermaid and the you know Serena tumor, i didn't look Italian. <laughs>
0: so- oh, when you when you say it with an Italian accent, it sounds right.
2: I was like, oh, yeah, no, this is the good stuff from Europe. And then I looked at the can one day and it's like, oh, I think it's Indonesia or something like that. The they, they claim
0: that it's still pole and line court, which is maybe a positive. But, yeah, I don't know. As soon as an industry takes, especially in the food industry, when you take up any buzzword that makes yeah. it sound healthy, you can run that for any unhealthy food practice you want and, and it's still you still get away with it.
2: Well, I mean, there are some, obviously, some bodies that you have to – Oh, yeah, yeah. Those claims, but, yeah, on the whole, um, I mean, I still eat Serena. Nothing's wrong with it. It just goes to show you, like, what we assume and mm. then we go a little deeper and it's like, oh, shit, I was completely wrong. I was completely wrong about India. I was completely wrong about tuna. I don't know. Maybe the oysters are fine and maybe they're not. Who knows? But um, –
0: Yeah.
2: But, but – oh. You have that. The point is, and I'm going to bring it back to Joe, and maybe even ask you guys your thoughts on this after I brought up my my side of things. Like, had you ever considered when he talks about elk being so organic and free range, and the the fact that it could be exposed? Like, it's not necessarily. Well, think about it like this: what might have concerned you about the Chinese oysters was their standards. Maybe psychologically it's what are they doing to them rather than what are they making sure that they reach before they sell them for human consumption. But did you ever think about the fact that wild game meat, I mean, he might have been grazing on a field somewhere that did have pesticide in it, maybe not in deep Wyoming, but you have no idea the health of that animal. When you kill it. Well,
0: yeah. And I, I definitely have like to, to go hunting. And I, I've always thought, like, how do we actually know how healthy that animal is? And I I mean, the first one is just observation. Obviously, like in Australia, there's a, a, I forget what it's called. There's that disease that affects kangaroos, especially down south, like around Victoria. Oh, and man. they are mental. Like they just walk around like bobbleheading. Um, and yeah, that, that is a visual sign that I would say again.
2: Is it CWD? Chronic
1: wasting disease. Yeah, That's what we of, have here. They sort of do circle problem.
0: work. They just their oh, brains okay. get wobbled. It's, it's like they're just permanently on the piss. Like they they can't hop straight. Their heads are wobbling around. And I'm like, visual signs is a pretty good indicator of an unhealthy animal. I mean, to prove that an animal is completely healthy, it's a bit more difficult, but. Um, if if you are like yeah, if, if you are going deep into the woods or into the bush, um, away from farms and away from people, I think you're fairly safe. And I, I mean, any any animals I've ever eaten that we've caught, we just cook the shit out of them, so. Yeah,
2: but it's not, it's not away from people that's the problem. It's like this is how I say it to people. I'm like, people assume that anything natural is better. Mm. Which which, on the whole it is, but why do you need water purification tablets when you're out in nature? Not, not hiking in third world country. I mean out, out. Because there's mold in that shit that can kill you. There's algae in there that can kill you that's completely naturally occurring. Yeah. So w- we've evolved to learn what kills us and I feel like somewhere in the middle is the right attitude. It's not all the way one side or the other. But
1: no, I'd be I'd be worried about people just who don't have the resources of Joe to go and get a helicopter and fly into the, you know, hinterlands and where it's people like, oh, well, Joe goes and sources his own meat. I can just duck down the local farmer's paddock and bang a roo and like, no, the, it's, or whatever, you know, like it, it's been on pesticides. It's been on.
2: Is he carbon offsetting his flights, bringing that meat back to Texas?
1: <laughs> who knows? Probably not.
2: Mm-hmm. It's uh, a very luxurious thing to be able to board a plane and pack your guns to go and, even if you do three days of hard work trekking, to go and dispatch an animal, to put it in your $800 ski and fly it back to Texas to eat at your leisure. Yeah, that, I never thought about that on. Yeah, on I mean,
0: purpose. yes and no. The counter-argument, right, and, I mean, I don't do this anywhere near enough, but mates up, up north will go – Jump in a car, drive out into a state forest, an hour from home, and then walk for a day or two, and be completely away from people, and then hunt, pack, foot meat out, yeah, and get. So, yeah, I mean, and that costs them a grand total of about thirty bucks in fuel. Um, so um, again, just just playing devil's advocate, I, I don't think I, I think there is ways to to for everybody to experience hunting and, and like harvesting their own food without. Being a billionaire or a millionaire at least.
2: Oh, You can hunt here without it being expensive. That's Mm. not what I'm saying. I'm saying that his particular way of doing it is very exclusive, literally. Um, And then you've got the issue of the population and the way that we consume meat, particularly with people who want to do the carnivore diet um, versus what's out there organically. And, and naturally sustainably, yeah, yep. and sustainably. Yeah, you can't I'm you know, you imagine I'm if really 6
1: billion people food. jumped on the carnivore diet tomorrow and like, no, I want to go and hunt. You're like, but there's not enough things out there to hunt. You need farming. Like, honestly, at the moment, you, you can't, if everyone went, no, we want to get rid of all the farming and all the advertising, we're going to go, you know, I want to be a man and hunt my own food. There's not. There's not enough food out there. Pacific. There's not, and,
2: and at the same time, there's also the argument that, you know, to be completely vegetarian or, or more correctly vegan, there's a, most of the land in the states that is used to, to raise livestock is called marginal land. And it's land that would not be suitable to grow crops. So it's not like they're taking away from it. And this is shit that like city people, which I include myself as part of until recently when I started to actually study this stuff. Just don't think about that stuff. I don't think about what kind of soil it takes to to grow veggies, and if you can't grow veggies, can you stick a cow on it? Sure. So sometimes it's not as simple as just swapping one out for the other, you know?
1: Yeah, I think think people have got to sort of have a, a think about and broaden their horizons and bring some context into the world and what they're doing and where they're getting their information from.
2: This also might be the most controversial podcast I've ever done, guys. Really? This might be the least controversial one we've ever done. (laughs) Usually people just want to talk about recipes and barbecue and smoke and meat, and we've talked about, like, adult things.
0: Where the sausage is made. Um, (laughs) But I think that's – we can get to that now if you want to, because I've definitely got plenty of questions on you. Best recipes with that, uh, and, and since you've got a shameless plug in, I'll throw one in. We we do have a big campaign coming up that's called a barbecue to remember, um, and we we do need to push some ideas and inspiration out there for people who aren't frequent barbecuers who want to do something decent. So, we've we got any hot tip recipes that are achievable for people? Hang on, let's let's break it down. If you're going to do slow cook stuff, I personally don't have the patience. I tried, um, doing brisket once and because it took so long, I'd already eaten twice before it was finished. And then it, the meat sat in my fridge for two days and then I ate it later because I, when I'm hungry, I want food within half an hour or Uber Eats is going to solve my problems. Um, so let's, let's look at maybe one recipe for slow cooking and one for fast.
2: Um, well, I also have a, a fast, slow recipe. Um, there's a cut called Tri-Tip that's becoming much more popular in Australia that's a really lovely sort of whole roast, and you can smoke it in an hour. You actually smoke it to medium mm. rare. Um, so I would definitely recommend using my Hardcore Carnival Black Seasoning, which has activated charcoal in it, so it turns the meat black on the outside. So even though it's a really short cook time, you've got that lovely outside and then it'll be perfectly pink in the middle. Um so that recipe is on my website. It takes like I said, about an hour at all my temperatures are in Fahrenheit, sorry, but um at around uh two hundred and seventy five degrees. Um but I from what I hear the Australians who are into low and slow and barbecuing are also using Fahrenheit because it's more precise than Celsius, because you've got more range. So um maybe that's happening, I don't know. Other than that, um, gosh, I, I don't, what would my most traditional, I do have a, I do have a few Aussie inspired recipes. I've got a lamb rack with a Vegemite glaze Ooh. on there. It's pretty good. Um, smoked meatloaf also takes about two hours. Smoked meatloaf. Yeah. Smoked meatloaf. I, I know that's a very American thing. I didn't, at least I didn't have meatloaf growing up in Australia, but, um, what would I say, my other, what's a quick, like super quick and easy? The big thing for me is if if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, don't know, not really sure what I'm doing at all, um, I encourage you to go and check out the JKF method, which is just keep flipping. And that's what my big thing of how I think people should cook steaks in general. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about an eye fillet or a scotch fillet or um, an oyster blade. It'll work with any of them, and it just sort of gives you the confidence to cook that steak right every time. And I think that that once people have the confidence to do it, um, they can take it from there. You know. Well, so what's that?
0: You just just flip often.
2: It's constant flipping, like pretty much every thirty to forty-five seconds.
0: You're killing me. You're killing me. This is like a, a rite of passage for an Australian boy. Like when you get to the point where you can flip a steak once and it's perfect on the inside, you are a man in Australia. That's how I, that's how I was raised to barbecue. It was like, my old man was like, stop flipping it. Stop touching it. You flip it once. And I'm like, right And nine times out of 10, you, as, as a kid anyway, you cook it to death. But the first time you ever do a one flip steak and you get it medium rare, like you're a master.
2: Yeah, why so, I'm a woman in in America making a really good living, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: cooking cooking meat properly, I see.
2: Um, so the big difference why you would not leave it on one side is because when you leave it with exposure to heat for an extended period, sort of five to ten plus minutes, you start getting that gradient of color where it might be medium rare in the very middle, but you've got those grey edges all around it. Um, with the just keep flipping method, as long as you've got your charcoal or your, your gas barbie really hot. And that's the key. And I talk about that too. You're going to develop that crust. It's called the Maillard reaction. The meat, the surface dries out and amino acids interact with reducing sugars to form those compounds that we love the taste of. It's the same thing that makes baked bread smell really good. So that reaction will happen. But because you're flipping it, you're not going to overcook it on any one side. So you actually get perfect what we call coast-to-coast pink um, or medium rare the whole way through without any graying, and you still get a really good crust on it too. So, mm. yeah.
1: Well, now I'm going to have to start. Just keep flipping. When it when in doubt, flip. That's good to
0: go. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great ride. <laughs>
2: The only reason that it wouldn't work is if your heat isn't hot enough. But like I said, I, t- I talk about that in detail in the article. There's a couple of videos as well. Um, and it's the same mistake that people make in their kitchens that our kitchen burners, like either we're too afraid to set smoke alarms off or those burners are really tiny little gas rings. Whereas restaurants have these massive burners, they get that, that pan really hot to sear. So that's the other biggest thing that people run into. I think that, that just the, the cooking surface is not hot enough. That's when you get that really unsatisfying grey, like, you know, it hits the grates and doesn't even sound like anything instead of that. Yeah. Good
0: and it turns out, like, you've boiled it. Like, it's just it's yes. boiled $30 exactly. steak. Boiled steak, yeah.
2: Exactly, which is, I don't think that – I think that we can all agree that boiled steak is not a good thing.
1: No, no. Because – and you would know because you cooked – uh, at the Australia Day Texas, ma- Texan Governor's Mansion.
2: Yes. I've also cooked out the front of Parliament House on a smoker, oh. which was pretty cool. Um, but they did a, they did a Aussie Day barbecue here at the Governor's Mansion because Austin's the capital of Texas. Um, and gosh, Andrew Peacock, who recently passed, used to live here in Austin and he attended one of them and, um, it was awesome. We cooked Vegemite burnt ends, beetroot coleslaw, and damper, and um, it was awesome. Yeah, it was really good. And also, all of the um, the people from the Texas Senate and the Texas government sort of came in, filed in for lunch, and you know, it was great. It was very cool.
1: We've got no uh, we haven't, we haven't got Jess Prols yet, but um, we've got Wendell Saylor throwing a snag on the barbie, but he doesn't have the skill set. That, that you have for the, uh, the It's a national, it's a big, it's a big barbecue campaign. That's why we're like, we've got to get her on because, uh, the podcast, we just launched it last week and we're like, if anyone knows barbecue and she's Australian, we're good. We're in.
2: Honestly, I feel like the big thing is like it, it's really inclusive. So uh, whether you do want to just roll out the old, the old crusty, you know, <laughs> rusty flat <laughs> top and burn a couple of snag, like that is really the good old Aussie barbecue, so why not, you know? Like just I think the point is, especially for, for the event that you've got going on, just get out there and give it a go, whether it's grilling or barbecuing or smoking or whatever, just, you know, give it a crack. Yeah,
0: you're right. I mean, that, that, that barbecues are kind of a famous Australian pastime, but for this campaign it's more about connecting people. That is, the way you can't have a barbecue. Well, you rarely you wouldn't have a barbecue by yourself. Like, if you're firing a barbecue it's generally you're going to bring people round, and that's the point. I think it's I think it's good to go. People need it at the moment. Like, I don't know what you're at at the moment, but yeah, Victoria and, and Sydney have been kind of locked down for way too long, so we need to get people unlocked and barbecuing by November.
2: Yeah. If you really want to support your mates and barbecue, bring some really good side dishes, so that if they fuck the meat up there's still something
0: to eat and that's showing real support. Ah, so good. Mate. Yeah.
2: Uh,
1: I just want to say thanks for, um, taking the time to come on and, and be controversial, I suppose. (laughs) Sorry about that. Look, they're going to love it. Um, I mean, it's all about the the whole thing is about teaching people and, and your knowledge and background and and all the stuff you've done is pretty amazing. I think the listeners are going to be pretty pumped for this one. Um, but well, I just want to say thanks for coming on. And uh, is, there, is there anything you got coming up uh, and any sort of promotions you've got going on at the moment?
2: Uh, we did just release a new seasoning for Hardcore carnival called Tex-Mex, which is on its way to Australia and should land within the next month, I hope. Um, so keep an eye out for that. It's at a lot of national chains and great local butcher stores as well. Um but this was honestly very, very fun uh, and really interesting. And, and as much as I love talking about all things barbecue, it's always extra exciting when I get asked things that are a little left to centre and unusual. I really appreciate you having me on and I think the work that you guys do is really awesome and, and so is this event that you've got coming up. And I hope everyone, you know, es- my biggest thing, like I said, is if you are a little shy on on being a, a Barbie a barbecuer or, or just give it a go. Just just, just try and, and burn something and see how it tastes and then you just can only get better from there. Kelly, <laughs> thanks. <It's> <laughs> no worries.